Hi, Kate. Hi, Daniel. So welcome back to Hot and Bothered, a podcast on climate politics for the 99%. I'm Daniel Aldana-Cohen. I'm Kate Aronoff. Um, you may have noticed we've been on hiatus for a while. But like any good band, we're back. Special tour with a special guest. Hi, folks. I'm Billy Fleming. Billy, why don't you say a few words about yourself? I am the Wilkes Family Director of the Ian McCarg Center here at the University of Pennsylvania. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know I have a very perfect dog and a very large cat. So neither of us has any pets, um, so we thought it was important to bring the pet into the climate debate. Um, but in addition to that, uh, and Pepper is a perfect dog, um, we're convening this special round of podcasts because at the University of Pennsylvania, the three of us, Billy, Kate, and I, hosted an amazing conference called Designing a Green New Deal, where we really tried to figure out in a little bit more detail what does it mean to do a Green New Deal in practice, physically, what makes it politically possible, what does it actually look like on the ground. And we're doing a little series of episodes uh, where we're going to talk for a little bit, and then you're going to hear the panel presentations of our incredible roster of panelists. So, Billy, why don't you tell us a little bit about the panel we're going to hear now. This is the first panel of the day, um, morning panel, and you really helped to put this one together. Yeah, I mean, I think this panel, really like the event itself, um, was focused on uh, the idea that the Green New Deal has necessarily so far been driven by and focused on uh, the various ways in which this package of ideas could transform you know, the everyday life of workers in this country, the energy sector, um, but we also recognize that those have huge spatial implications. Um, and so you know, what, we want, what we wanted to do with this panel and I think with this event more broadly is to think about the various ways in which the built environment, um, where we live and how we live, could be transformed through a Green New Deal with the idea that, you know, you're not going to notice a whole lot is different when you flip a light switch on or off in the house and it's powered by wind or solar instead of coal. But you will notice when, you know, you don't spend your commute, you know, two hours driving to the suburbs, screaming at people, honking and like doing all the things that make us crazy. Um, but you are riding in like a low or no carbon train or bus rapid transit or other kind of system. Uh, and really in this panel, we wanted to sort of look back at the chief analogy for the Green New Deal, which is the New Deal. Uh, and to think about, you know, the massive spatial and built environment agenda and land use agenda of that particular moment in American history and to look back at what worked really well about it uh, and to look at what did not work at all about it and think about what we might learn from that period uh, in history to carry forward into this moment. Great. Now, before you just tell us some, you know, a few words about how we chose these panelists, I just want to plug my own lifestyle. I bike to work, which is amazing. I will notice <laughs> when I am biking behind electric buses. And I'll notice when I'm biking behind other cyclists. Um, so you're exactly right. I mean, those physical details are going to make a huge difference in our everyday life. And I am so excited not to swallow diesel every single day on the way to work right out of the exhaust pipe. Just going to make sure you hear the electric buses, too. You know, They're very quiet, stealthy. It's the danger. Yeah. The danger of, of the transition. We didn't talk about that, unfortunately. I and mean, we're going to need no carbon um, side mirrors on our bikes. Yeah. Electric buses, <laughs> the silent killer, like we know this. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. All right. So um, remind <laughs> us who we had um, telling us about, you know, what happened, why it was good, why it was bad, what we should know about it. Sure. So this panel, uh, they were amazing. Uh, and we began with Raj Patel at the University of Texas. Most people probably know him through his other writing. He's written about, you know, food systems and agriculture for a long time. And he really brought us into the sort of um, farm workers movement 
and the agricultural ambitions of the New Deal. And again, you know, I think he focused in particular on the role that strikes played in building momentum for all the other things we wanted to do at that particular moment in time. Uh, we had Nancy Levinson from Places Journal. So she's the, the editor of that journal. They do amazing work and they have focused in particular the last few years on that moment in history, the New Deal. Um, it's built environment implications and the role that designers played at that moment in history in helping to shape not just the physical landscape, but the policy design that FDR and his you know advisors carried through. Uh, and we went then to Jennifer Light, uh, who's a, a science and technology studies professor at MIT and has literally written the book on the urban profession's role in this moment in history. And she walked us through that again and I think grounded everyone in uh, what it meant for landscape architects, architects, and city planners to be a part of this mass movement of people and the only real moment of social democratic rule in this country. Uh, and we went then to Nick Pevsner, who's my colleague here at Penn and is like the energy landscapes guy. Like he knows more about this than like anyone else in the world. He's forgotten more about it than I know. And he really walked us through, you know, what it would mean to build out the infrastructure of decarbonization in the way that we built out the infrastructure of sort of rural electrification uh, during the New Deal era. And then we ended with Mary Hagler, who's like my favorite person in the world for a million reasons, um, but who really, I think, talked and, and thought a lot about the language and the rhetoric and the communications uh, program that has to underpin and undergird and sort of stand up whatever this Green New Deal moment might be. Uh, and, you know, I think we haven't talked a lot about the propaganda uh, that came out of the New Deal era, but it's the thing that, because I'm a designer, I think about the most. I think about the, the iconography of the New Deal and what, you know, we might uncover through something like that in a Green New Deal. Kate, I feel like you like to think a lot about the kinds of stories that were being told back then. Different different idea of like what it meant to be a working person, you know, alive and shaping the future of the country in the 1930s. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I do like to think about... Um the new man of the 1930s, the new woman of the 1930s or whatever. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, the thing that like in that vein really stuck out to me from that panel was um, Nancy Levinson sort of talking about just how fast the New Deal happened, just how fast some of these programs got rolled out um, at a speed that is like, as she explains, just sort of unthinkable in our in our current um, moment and just, you know, transform people's lives on a very rapid um time frame, you know, for the reasons that Raj Patel talks about, uh, which are that, you know, there was massive, massive pressure on politicians at every, you know, moment of the New Deal. And I think it's like instructive and there's, you know, complications of the New Deal, which many of the people who, you know, spoke throughout the day uh, got into the weeds of, um, including on this panel. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of fascinating moment and feels like so can feel, you know, so sort of far removed from where, where we are now at times, just how, you know, functional uh, government was. Yeah. And I think, I think picking Nancy out of there is really important because I think, you know, she maybe better than anyone else throughout the day really hit the point that the new deal itself was not this like singular package of legislation that like FDR passed day one and we just implemented from there on out. It was this like total improvisational experimental like mess and some stuff worked really well and it got to continue. Some stuff was terrible and it ended. Um, and I think that's like that idea of the federal government as like not only a, an activist force for good in this country, but like our chief experimenter is really exciting and really necessary. And I think that's one of the, the sort of core lessons from the New Deal we have to carry forward. Yeah. And I, I was talking to Nancy a little bit afterward and she um, said someone had tweeted that like, you know, the New Deal was this improvisation sort of quoting her. Um, 
And she said, you know, that's not that's not entirely accurate. She like pushed back on that a bit. And I, I think, you know, kind of what she had in mind or, you know, I will not put words into her mouth. But um, I think the the core of what, you know, she's saying, which is is right, is that, you know, it's not just that like government was improvising. Right. So there was a very deliberate framework set up in which improvisation could happen. Um, there were resources sort of directed toward that sort of like the budgets available for, um, you know, people to do things that didn't work right it was the you know government in the new deal that moved fast and broke things and also fixed a lot of things um but you know we today think of the private sector as being the sort of fountain of innovation and the place where all the you know exciting change happens but it was not so so long ago that that role was actually filled by government and and you know we actually you know just had a very different conception of what the state could do i think that's absolutely right i mean the speed question so essential because it seems that the timeline a decade you know, some of the best scientists in the world say we, the, the 2020s has to be a decade of Herculean efforts to decarbonize. But we have seen a bit something that looks a little bit like that. Um, the other thing I'd just quickly add before we turn to the panel, and, you know, this comes out very strongly in Raj Patel's talk, is the government as an incubator of change, an experimenter in the context of mass democratic action. And I think that, you know, if anything, if I could, like, join two presentations in one single dialectical swirl, it would have been, you know, Raj Patel and Nancy Levinson because we get... The energy from below, super combative, forcing open and cracking open coalitions, forging new coalitions uh, at an intense rate with a huge amount of struggle coming up from below. And then in that context, you have this governmental experimentation. So that kind of dialectic, and I think somebody later on might have talked about a more fluid relationship between movements and parties, movements and government. Um, the 1930s is really all about those two things um, moving in concert. Um, the last thing we should do before we jump in is we'll hear... Um, we'll hear somebody present the panel formally, and that person uh, works a fair bit with Billy. Do you want to say one one or two words about whose voice we'll hear first before we dive into the panel? Yeah, it might be more like five or six words, but uh, her name is Zan Lilahai. Uh, she's a, a master's of landscape architecture student here at Penn. Uh, she's been working with me on a whole bunch of Green New Deal stuff, including putting together this event, um, and is doing a bunch of work now for Data for Progress as well. I just want to say, too, that, you know, after the Green New Deal industrial policy builds out our um, network of low carbon, uh, low carbon establishments, and we have a, a worker cooperative owned uh, vegan ice cream shop, um, I do hope dialectical swirl is a, is a flavor. <laughs> I'm counting on it. So with that, let's get to the panel. All right, so I have the pleasure of introducing the first panel, Beyond Hagiography, Mining the New Deal Legacy. This conference begins looking back to the Green New Deal's chief analog in the American context, the New Deal, before moving to contemporary and future imagining to ground this discussion in what worked well and what did not in that era. The panelists include Raj Patel, who is an award-winning writer, activist, and academic. He's a research professor in the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin, a senior research associate at the Unit for the Humanities at the university currently known as Rhodes University, South Africa, and is a member of the International Panel of Experts on Sustainability Food Systems. Jen Light is the Byrne Dibner Professor of the History of Science and Technology and head of MIT's program in Science, Technology, and Society, STS. Her eclectic interests span the history of science and technology in America over the past 150 years. She is interested in female programming pioneers, early attempts to organize smart cities, racial implications of algorithmic thinking in federal housing policy, and the history of youth political media production uh, to the uptake of scientific and technical ideas and innovations across other fields. Nancy Levinson 
is the editor and executive director of Places. Since arriving at the journal in 2009, she has led its transition from print to digital, advanced the editorial mission of public scholarship, and overseen the launch of Places Books. Much of her recent work has focused on the influx of planning and design expertise into the federal government during the New Deal era. Nick Pefner is a full-time lecturer in the Department of Landscape Architecture at the University of Pennsylvania and is co-editor-in-chief of Scenario Journal, an online publication devoted to showcasing and facilitating the emerging interdisciplinary conversations between landscape architecture, urban design, engineering, and ecology. His research focuses on the public and civic potential of infrastructure and on the integration of urban ecological system and their metrics into design methodology. Mary Hegler is a climate justice essayist and communications professional based in New York City. Her writing has been published in Vox, Dame Magazine, Zora, and Inverse. She writes regularly on Medium and rants almost daily on Twitter, sometimes about bats. Uh, the panel will be moderated by Francesca Emmon, who's a cultural historian of urban planning and the built environment, and professor of city and regional planning and historic preservation at Penn, and Karen McCloskey, who is a professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture at the University of Pennsylvania. Hello. Raj Patel. Um, so, comrades, uh, th thank you, uh, Billy and Daniel and, and Kate, for, for inviting me here, um, and for inviting uh, my, my, my friend and co-author on a recent Jacobin piece that I did, Jim Goodman, uh, who is the president of the National Family Farm Coalition. Jim, stand up and take a bow. Uh, uh, the National Family Farm Coalition, a member of the international peasant movement La Via Campesina. Um, and uh, Jim and I wanted to uh, sort of uh, trouble received ideas of the original New Deal and, and pull a few lessons out of it. Um, so let me, uh, let, let me just uh, show you what the, I mean, the, the original sort of story of the New Deal, is, uh, when it comes to agriculture at least, was there was the Dust Bowl. Uh, and FDR correctly recognized uh, that uh, the problem stems from farmers being paid so little that they have to exhaust the fertility of the soil on which they depend uh, in order to be able to pull a living out of it. And, and that has catastrophic environmental consequences. And so uh, by the grace of the New Deal, uh, the Agricultural Adjustment Act turned things around in ways that look like this. Um, this, is, uh, this picture, Kansas Farming by Richard Haynes, is one that you can see in the federal courthouse in Wichita, Kansas. Um, and under the Agricultural Adjustment Act, far, farm prices rose under a system of parity pricing. Uh, there was a regime of supply management, uh, which limited production and helped diversify farming. And so with incomes stabilized and better crops planted, uh, ecological pressures on the land abated and uh, the business of growing food thrived. And, in this happily ever after picture, um, you can uh, you, you even have sort of fine young people there uh, waving to a United States Postal Service mail plane uh, in the distance, literally thanking the federal government for delivering the goods. Um, but this this sort of story of uh, the, the New Deal and its policies uh, is only partial. Uh, and it's one that comes at the end of a much longer and much bloodier history, one that you can see also in the federal uh, courthouse in Wichita, Kansas, uh, in this picture. Uh, this gives you the prehistory of uh, the agricultural New Deal, um, and that prehistory is the history of the United States. It's a story of genocide of indigenous people. It's the story of land being made safe for commerce and finance, for stagecoaches and railroad monopolies. 
And that colonial struggle is, is one that's been prosecuted since uh, Columbus turned the Americas into a capitalist frontier. Uh, it's one that's made the political geography of this country. Uh, and whether that transformation has happened uh, through the empire of cotton or the empire of sugar or of tobacco, um, it's one that's had global ramifications from the transatlantic slave trade to an ice age caused by, in part, the uh, genocide of indigenous people here. The capitalist transformation of America has always been about the production of profit through commodities uh, and answering questions like whose work, whose land, growing what, and selling to whom. Uh, and in agriculture, uh, whose work was uh, predominantly enslaved people, and today uh, major the majority of people of uh, majority people of color, whose land uh, predominantly indigenous, and then great colonial power struggles, growing what, growing commodity crops, and selling to whom, selling to the, the the great industrial monopolies of agriculture that have been part of America since the East India Company sold tea here. So transatlantic slavery answered the, the labor question, as has immigration more recently. Um, and this explains a paradox in agriculture, that while the hands that touch most of the food that's uh, eaten in the United States may be the hands of people of color, uh, farming is uh, among the whitest professions uh, in, uh, in, the, in the United States, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's whiter than speech therapy. Um, and, at the same time, uh, monopoly power is on the rise, um, with nearly every major agricultural commodity controlled by a handful of corporations. Now, this is what we face now, but that's what the New Deal addressed in the 1930s, because in agriculture, we've always seen uh, th these monopolies as a, as a uh, sort of integral part of how capitalist agriculture works. But this cartoon, published in uh, 1889, drew a straight line uh, through the robber barons uh, of Europe to the robber barons of the Gilded Age. It happened before, and it'll happen again. But the good news, I suppose, is, is that in agriculture, there's always been resistance uh, to this kind of capitalism, resistance that begins well before the New Deal. Now, not, not all of this resistance is as magnificent as, say, the, the, you know, the slave rebellion in, in Haiti in 1791, but the US does have moments of rebellion in agriculture that are worth remembering. Um, in Texas, for example, we had uh, the Great Cowboy Strike of 1883. Um, and that's important to remember, not just because of its demands for things like better coffee, uh, or for uh, the recognition of work uh, and the importance of, of, of decent pay, but also because uh, for the cowboys, uh, the, the work of cooking was no less valuable than the work of stewarding animals. They, they didn't make a, a distinction between productive and reproductive labor that way, and they saw no, no reason why the bosses should either. And, and this kind of strike activity, uh, I mean, in this particular case, may not have been successful in the long run, but US labor militancy in the food system continued. Um, through socialist organizing against monopolies, like the, the Armadale meatpacking strikes. Um, and it's these strikes that made the New Deal era possible. And th that's what we want to point to. It's worth understanding the New Deal as the product of a long history of struggle. Uh, it's important to see the New Deal as part of a war of position. Uh, if we understand that the New Deal was the culmination of a longer trajectory of anti-capitalist praxis, if you understand it as the building of a counter-hegemonic bloc, then we can understand more what's important as we think about the Green New Deal. Because today, I mean, we live in an era when unions are increasingly popular and in which strikes have won important victories, particularly in education. 
Um, now, if you put those strikes into perspective uh, since World War II, it doesn't look like uh, we're, uh, we're doing quite so well. Uh, but l last year, there were 20 major strikes uh, that involved about 0.1% of the U.S. population. Um, but it, while it looks like uh, the, the strike activity after the Second World War was impressive, really, it's important to look at the, the pre-New Deal work. Uh, because in 1919, uh, strikes involved 4% of the U.S. population, for over 4 million workers. And it's important also to understand that this strike activity is not uh, a, a failure of the New Deal. In fact, uh, strike activity increases through the New Deal. And that's what you'd expect if you understand that the New Deal wasn't a, a postponement of class conflict, but a moment of, of actually negotiating uh, a U.S. alternative to communism. There weren't any good examples of capitalism in the 1930s. There wasn't any way you could point to and say, the U.S. should be like that. Uh, the U.S. was desperately trying uh, to postpone its communist future, and the New Deal was the result. And if you understand that, uh, you understand why it was that labor militancy increased, because this is a moment of what it was like to be powerful. And in this moment, family farmers were allies. Um, and uh, the National Farmers Union, for example, still exists. Um, it's an organization that's yet to sign on to the Green New Deal. But back in the day, uh, you can see in this picture, uh, the, the, the Farmers Union was fighting for a farmer's holiday. Uh, and this was a, a moment in which farmers would withhold their product from market so that Wall Street would, would finally understand the power that people who worked the land might have. And you know, there was even a rhyme uh, called, let's call a farmer's holiday. A holiday, let's hold. We'll eat our wheat and ham and eggs and let them eat their gold. Um, and and th that idea of feeling powerful is, I think, what it is that we're here to explore. But it's also important to tell no lies or claim any easy victories. This was a moment of class struggle. And at the same time as the Farmers Union and uh, the Grange movement uh, were, were offering what today might be called something like food sovereignty, uh, there was another organization uh, that was being pushed uh, and that, of course, was the Farm Bureau. The Farm Bureau was created by the Chamber of Commerce. Along the, cham the, the Chamber of Commerce had things like a Roads and Alleys Bureau and a Protection Bureau, and it spun off the Farm Bureau uh, as a way of answering the, the, the questions of who should be on the land and what sort of work that they should be doing with the answer, well, we need white businessmen uh, to be stewards of the land. And through a, a savvy uh, combination of coercion and consent, uh, the Farm Bureau was able to pit northern farmers against southern farmers. They were able to put farmers, pit farmers against tenants and farm workers. They were able to suggest that landowners of any size had much more in common with monopolies than they did with workers. They suggested that whites had more in common with each other than with people of color. And by smashing union organizing, the Farm Bureau grew. And the victories uh, achieved for workers and for food systems and for sustainable farming in the New Deal were eroded. Parity pricing is a, is a thing of the past and hopefully of the future. But what, what we see now is that farms have grown in size. Family farming has declined um, to the extent that last year for the, the lowest income bracket of family farms, the uh, average income was negative $1,200 for the smallest and lowest income family farms. And the conditions of farm workers have improved only through a certain amount of labor militancy. And today the Farm Bureau has six million members and purports to represent the voice of the American farmer and they don't like the Green New Deal. 
Um, now, th that's, a, that's a bit of a stretch because there are only two million American farmers, and so an organization with six million people uh, claiming to represent American farmers is, is, is uh, stre stretching the truth a little bit. Um, but most of the, mem the members of the, the Farm Bureau are there not because they are farmers, but because they like insurance discounts. Um, now, it's important to remember, though, that the, the New Deal does offer important lessons um, because we find ourselves now, just as the, new, the, the workers in the New Deal did, uh, without any thriving aspirational models of liberal capitalism on earth. You, you, you can't point, anywhere, point to anywhere that isn't itself fighting fascism. Um, and just like before, uh, there are those who would like to address the current crisis of capitalism through fascism, and who would like to address the current crisis on the planet with eco-fascism. And we, res we have to respond to that. In fact, we can respond to that by, again, drawing on a history of uh, New Deal-era organizing. Um, because they, too, were fighting fascism in America, in Europe, and Japan. Uh, and the strategies forged by America's socialists uh, offers a sort of counterweight. Uh, and it's one that was most clearly demonstrated by the Southern Tenants Farmers Union, STFU. Um, now, uh, uh, I, just, I, I don't know what to do about that acronym, uh, but there we are. So, now, the, the Southern Tenants Farmers Union understood that interracial solidarity was vital, uh, and they understood that uh, the intellectual life of the working class was vital. That the, intellectual, that the working class had an intellectual life, uh, and that through study and through science and through peer review, uh, there would be models for organizing and transforming the land and their relationship to it. And that moment of power is not about uh, being told what to do by an organizer, but yourself becoming an organizer, becoming liberated. And that's, I, I think, what's perhaps most important about the, 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 the a lesson that we can pull from the New Deal is uh, that if we're looking for an alternative to eco-fascism and white supremacy, it comes through radical democratic organizing of the kind that the Southern Tenant Farmers Union does. Um, that, uh, you know, that kind of organizing understands white supremacy and patriarchy to be overcome, not because anyone is woke, uh, but because life is lived intersectionally. And that in order to secure a future for all, uh, liberation from white supremacy and patriarchy is just part of what it is that we have to do. And that organizing has to be intersectional, permanent, and persistent. And, and there's a reason that the, the cowboy strikers in 1889 understood, uh, one that was articulated best by the great Caribbean philosopher C.L.R. James. And it's a lesson uh, in organizing, especially in moments of social transformation and rupture like the New Deal and, and in this climate crisis, uh, that, that we should hold. Uh, and that, we, that, that idea is that we should all operate under the radical democratic understanding that we have to fight for equality uh, and that every cook can govern. Thanks very much. Okay. Jen Light. Okay, so good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to share a story with you uh, from my research on the American urban professions during the New Deal. This was an extremely important period in the history of urban studies, city planning, and the real estate industry consolidating their legitimacy as professions and gaining public traction for their ideas. 
Understanding how they did this is useful background to think about um, how to do it again today. And this story is also useful to think with about the present because of a key commonality that it shares with the Green New Deal. That commonality is thinking by analogy. So New Deal era urban professionals believed that human communities in cities closely resembled plant and animal communities in nature. In an era when ecological science guided natural resource planning, but urban affairs were not on the national agenda, they argued that cities also needed to be planned with their natures in mind. Impressively, this argument succeeded, ultimately, um, at the national policy level, but on the ground results did not play out as planned. So I'm going to share some details from this historical episode now so we can use it to think with in our conversation. So the story actually begins in 1920 um, when, you know, that's the magical moment. The U.S. Census finds more Americans living in cities than in rural areas, and we publicly declare the frontier has closed. Urban research takes off. The Chicago School of Sociology, which many people in the audience have probably heard of, dominated the field, and it was all about thinking by analogy. Scholars including Robert Park and Ernest Burgess borrowed concepts like these from the plant and animal sciences as they sought to understand patterns among human populations in urban areas. Many other sociologists, economists, and geographers followed their lead. Plant and animal scientists themselves, as these titles indicate, also backed these ideas that there was something that plants, animals, and humans all shared in common in community settings. Again, this may be familiar to many in the audience. This is Ernest Burgess's famous ecological model of the city, which depicted both urban structure and processes. It described how varied populations of people and institutions clustered in certain areas, as well as how cities evolved over time in patterns that were predictable uh, of growth and decay. So in particular, for those of you who aren't familiar with this model, the idea here is that better off populations tend to move outward while central cities decline and decay. Now Burgess was borrowing directly not just from the language, but also from the visual rhetoric of plant ecology. More specifically, from Frederick Clements's ideas about ecological zonation and the natural life cycle of plant communities. As urban trends during the Great Depression provided more evidence to support the new urban science, um, Many scholars decided that they needed to move beyond their original view that, well, we're all, we're just doing this to make social science more scientific. Um, and they thought, you know, we really need to take action on the urban decay we're seeing in our central cities. So along with city planners and the real estate industry, they decided to make this knowledge useful and take action on what they called urban blight which is yet another term borrowed from the plant sciences. The challenge was limited legal and financial tools at their disposal, and the fact that no federal agency like the Departments of Agriculture or the Interior placed these issues on the national agenda. So the early days of the New Deal underscored key differences in Americans' willingness to intervene in rural versus urban areas. For example, the Resettlement Administration relocated struggling rural families away from agriculturally worn out lands to communities planned by the federal government. 
The U.S. Soil Conservation Service worked with farmers in place, forming soil conservation districts and offering technical advice on methods to prevent further degradation. These and other programs illustrated that Americans did have the political will to engage with government-backed planning, to use eminent domain to set aside land for specific purposes, and to invest financial and human resources in collaborations with private property owners. They also illustrated the dominance of scientific natural resource management techniques. So in these programs, Frederick Clements's ideas became the basis for action, as well as great confidence that present environmental problems could be reversed and future ones prevented um, if forests and farms could be planned according to their natural life cycles. So uh, this is uh, a land use capability map from the Soil Conservation Service. What it's showing is apparently scientific determinations about what should be done with different kinds of land. Should it lie fallow? Should it be put into certain kinds of uses for certain kinds of crops? Should animals go there? Uh, and on what time scale should all these activities occur? While well, watching these developments, city planners and real estate professionals soon decided that they should launch a campaign to persuade policymakers and the public that urban areas could be similarly improved by keeping the nature of cities in mind. So planners associated with the U.S. Natural Resources Planning Board observed that the pioneer mentality behind the Dust Bowl had also plagued cities. And therefore, city and county planning should be linked in a total strategy so that national resources, rather than just natural resources, could be best developed for future human use. And they were particularly concerned about having access to eminent domain uh, for land clearance, which was not possible in urban contexts. The real estate industry, inspired by soil conservation, organized demonstration efforts in several cities showing how partnerships between homeowners and technical experts around urban conservation could repair and reverse neighborhood decline. These urban professionals collaborated with each other and their social science colleagues in other endeavors like this one. It's a master plan for Chicago, which proposed that a comprehensive and continuous program of clearance and conservation, which used the life cycle of land to sequence public and private participation, would improve the city over time. Um, you can see, I don't have time to talk about it, but um, you can see there's a 1942 date on that plan, which technically postdates the New Deal, so why am I talking about it? Well, much as my story begins before the New Deal, we have to continue beyond the late 1930s to see how this all played out. National policy for cities on the model of natural resource planning for farms and forests did become a reality, but only after the Second World War. Two post-war Illinois laws reflected the ongoing mobilizations in Chicago and provided the template for the Federal Housing Acts of 1949 and 1954, which we collectively call urban renewal. Select any number of cities from this period and you will find a master plan, something that looks like Chicago's earlier template, mapping the life cycle of urban land to decide where clearance versus conservation should occur. As with so many urban policies, however, hopes for a nation of renewable cities fell short on implementation. This is probably one of the most famous books on urban renewal. 
Um, I don't have time to enumerate all the reasons that the, the programs failed, but prominent among them is that eminent domain and land clearance proved highly controversial in densely settled neighborhoods, and that white families in areas experiencing racial change typically chose to move rather than work to improve the area, leaving conservation for their African-American neighbors. If we return for a moment to the analogy between ecologies and cities, these, excuse me, these disappointments are perhaps not surprising. Had the many urban professionals pushing for renewal looked closely at New Deal natural resource planning efforts over the longer term, they would have discovered more mixed results. So many programs, for example, that were theoretically supposed to improve the um, both impoverished land areas and the lives of their inhabitants ended up in implementation basically as business development schemes. They would also have discovered that ecologists and natural resource planners had turned away from Frederick Clements's ecological principles. So they were essentially working with outmoded scientific analogy by the time all was said and done. Okay, very quickly, how can this story help us think about contemporary proposals for a Green New Deal? Well, first, perhaps most bluntly, it's a reminder that not every aspect of the New Deal should be seen as a model to duplicate. So we need to do some close work to evaluate what worked and didn't and why. Second for me, though, is the bigger issue. Um, thinking by analogy can be exceptionally useful, but it also requires caution and scrutiny. For New Deal-era social scientists, city planners, and the real estate industry, an appeal to cities' ecologies and life cycles did bring new resources to address urban problems in the form of policies, money, and prestige. At the same time, though, the problems themselves were not fully addressed. This is merely one manifestation of a larger pattern that my work details across the 20th century urban professions. Thinking by analogy, whether this example of the city as ecology or a later era's infatuation with cities as systems, um, these have been powerful rhetorical tools to mobilize attention to urban concerns. But these large-scale mobilizations around urban problem-solving, even those that invite citizen participation, frequently better serve the interests of the urban professions than they address the problems at hand. So I will leave you with that to think about. Thank you. Next up is Nancy Levinson. I'd like to thank uh, Billy and Daniel and Kate for inviting me here today. Uh, it's a privilege to be here uh, to talk about the Green New Deal because the Congressional Resolution is such an impressive document. It's also a savvy document, claiming in its name a lineage with one of the most remarkable eras in American political history. So in the spirit of this panel, Mining the New Deal Legacy, I'd like to offer some reflections on how we might do this, and I will note that I do so as a journal editor who reads a lot of history, not an historian. The first thing to emphasize is that the legacy is well worth mining. The New Deal that began in March 1933 with the inauguration of Franklin Roosevelt was easily the most creative period in U.S. government in the 20th century. For the better part of a decade, 
FDR and his cabinet and advisors worked with Congress to advance a series of laws, programs, and projects that transformed American life. In the famous first 100 days, these included the Civilian Conservation Corps, Tennessee Valley Authority, and the Public Works Administration. By the end of the first term, the list had expanded to comprise Social Security, the National Labor Relations Act, and the Works Progress Administration, to name just a handful. The achievements are all the more remarkable because they were not, for the most part, the result of any detailed program that had been worked out in advance. In one of his campaign speeches, Roosevelt was characteristically vague on the details, even as he pledged himself, famously, to a course of bold, persistent experimentation, which is exactly the course he followed. As Richard Hofstadter has argued, the New Deal is best understood not as an overarching plan, but as a series of improvisations held together not by theory, but strategy. And it worked as well as it did because if Roosevelt was not an ideologue, he was a master politician. And this was a talent well understood at the time and it's captured in these cartoons. One showing the 32nd president as a kindly physician dispensing remedies to a weak Uncle Sam while a compliant Congress stands by. And the other showing him as a crafty card player manipulating the so-called alphabet agencies of a newly vigorous federal government. Now over the years, some of these alphabet agencies have attained a kind of epic status among designers and planners because of their profound impact upon the built environment and natural environment. And certainly one way to mine the New Deal legacy is to study its constructed achievements. To study, for example, the Civilian Conservation Corps which started in 1933 and put jobless men to work repairing and constructing um, public forests and parks. Over the course of nine years, it employed more than three million men in more than 4,500 camps in every state in the country. It was widely hailed for its impact, both on the landscape and on the men to whom it gave jobs. And in fact, one register of the latter's success is that there is an alumni organization that continues to meet. And as you can see, this year's reunion will take place in two weeks at one of the parks that the CCC built in upstate New York. <clears throat> Another agency well worth studying is the Public Works Administration, which also started in 1933 and was responsible for constructing or contracting more than 35,000 projects, including such massive works as Grand Coulee Dam and the Triborough Bridge. And then there's the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, which started in 1935 and focused on comparatively smaller projects, like the Riverwalk in San Antonio, Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles. Viewed from the vantage point of today, when our federal government is anything but vigorous, these major projects can seem especially astonishing. And as Jason Scott Smith has argued, the New Deal was nothing less than a public works revolution. And actually, for that reason, singling out individual projects, as I've just done, can feel reductive. Because what was so, re what was so remarkable about the New Deal was its sheer scope. And a scope that starts to become clear on the impressive website of the Living New Deal, 
which is run by geographers and historians in Berkeley, and which features a growing crowdsourced database of projects. Now, these tens of thousands of projects are perhaps the most obvious legacy of the New Deal, but there's another legacy that seems equally valuable, though more elusive. A legacy that's not about the physical projects, but rather about the administrative creativity and bureaucratic talent that made these projects happen. How, for example, did the CCC put three million men to work in 4,500 camps? How did it plant three billion trees and construct more than 800 state parks? Now the answers start to emerge when you read the program's final report. And what you find is a 114-page document that's not simply a quantitative tally of erosion control, windbreaks, tree planting, and cabin building, although that's there in a four-page appendix. The heart of the report is a detailed narrative, an almost scene-by-scene account of how the program started and evolved. In the opening pages, for example, we learn that on March 9, 1933, four days after the inauguration, Roosevelt convened a small group of officials at the White House at 4 p.m. He outlined his concept for the CCC and asked, could this be put into effect at once? The officials said yes, and after a break for dinner, the draft legislation was on the president's desk at 9 p.m. At 10 p.m., Roosevelt met with a group of congressional leaders, and three weeks later, on March 31st, the legislation was passed by both houses in a voice vote. By July 4th, there were 275,000 men at work in the first camps. Now, obviously, to an American in 2019, this seems extraordinary. You know, a tale not just from another time, but almost another country. And as the narrative proceeds, we begin to see how the program moved so rapidly. We read about its unique organization, how it functioned not as a standalone bureaucracy, but as an agency that worked across existing departments, including interior, labor, agriculture, the military, the National Park Service, and Forest Service. And as the author of the report puts it, let us remember that the CCC has been a gloriously aggressive agency. In a similar spirit, America Builds offers a detailed account of the Public Works Administration. Again, not just projects, but process. And here too, we see a newly assembled group, let me just, uh, a newly assembled group of bureaucrats figuring out what it will take to commission and construct tens of thousands of projects. And over more than 300 pages, the report describes the various problems that had to be solved. Would the projects be federal, local, run by government or private contractors, financed directly or via municipal bonds? And so on and on it goes in that spirit. And as the program director, Harold Ickes, who was also the Secretary of the Interior, writes in the foreword, what he hopes is that the record will be available to students of the theory of public works and its efficacy in helping bring about economic recovery. And there's one more report worth mentioning, the final report of the WPA, which also offers a fascinating record, not just of built results, but administrative ingenuity. Not just the what, but the how. It starts with an eloquent letter of transmittal that underscores this purpose, 
to make the WPA experience available for future guidance for us. And it includes this sentence. The WPA program originated under a condition of mass unemployment and misery of gigantic proportions. I personally find this moving because of the way it moves quickly from a bureaucratic abstraction, mass unemployment, to the human dimension of the Great Depression, misery of gigantic proportions. And the report then goes on for 168 pages to describe the components, engineering, construction, training, re-employment, and also, in the table of contents, as you can see, a division of investigation. It's worth emphasizing, especially these days, that the New Dealers were obsessed with limiting the, the patronage and graft that were long associated with public works. As Paul Krugman once wrote, the New Deal made almost a fetish out of policing its own programs against potential corruption. And this fetish was not only ethical but political because part of the case for spending vast sums of federal money were showing that the money would be spent honestly. And making the case for federal funding is itself part of the administrative legacy. The first section of the report, relief prior to the WPA, is essentially a critique of the Hoover administration and the over-reliance on private charity. After showing the failure of this, of this approach, the report says simply, there was no longer any question of the necessity of federal aid. The New Deal's case for federal aid was, of course, spectacularly successful. As William Luchtenberg has written, FDR and the New Deal almost revolutionized the agenda of American politics. And yet, as he also writes, the revolution was incomplete and it had a profound flaw. To obtain congressional approval of all his plans, some anyway, Roosevelt made a Faustian bargain with the racist Southern senators and many of the New Deal programs were segregated. And as many historians, including Ira Katz-Nelson, have argued, the New Deal was thus compromised by its complicity with Jim Crow. And so this too is a legacy, and it's one that the authors of the resolution are keenly aware of, as seen here in this passage on behalf of frontline and vulnerable communities. I've described just a few of the New Deal legacies that might be mined, and, I'm gonna, and I will conclude by arguing that there's another and more fundamental legacy. Because to some significant degree, the deepest legacy of the New Deal is not about the specific programs or policies. It's about the recalibration of the relationship between public and private. The New Deal insisted that the federal government would be responsible for a vast array of public works and a whole new range of social welfare. The result was a new relationship, a new trust, and almost a new social contract between the government and the governed. And so I would argue that the ultimate success of the Green New Deal will hinge on a similar recalibration of public and private. It will hinge on a rejection of the financialization and privatization that have dominated our politics since the Reagan administration. And it will hinge too on a new acceptance of a vigorous public sector. In his great essay, What is Living and What is Dead in Social Democracy, the late Tony Judd makes the case for a renewal of the state as the responsible guardian 
of public welfare. And he argues that we need, once again, to think the state. The great promise of the Green New Deal is that it will give us much to think about. Thank you. Now you'll hear from Nicholas Pevsner. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm coming at this from design, and the Green New Deal agenda so far uh, has been, I think it's fair to say, articulated primarily through economic and social justice lenses. But the Green New Deal also implies a dramatic spatial reorganization of America's land use, of the American landscape. <clears throat> and so regardless of um, the final details of the Green New Deal, I think we're aiming to if we're aiming to radically decarbonize the U.S. economy and energy grid over a 10-year time frame, it'll come with some radical reconfigurations of infrastructure and physical space. Um, and so today, I'll argue that the landscape architecture profession is well positioned to take on this land use conversation implied by the Green New Deal and that FDR's original New Deal of the 1930s offers some compelling lessons for us today. Um, spatial implications for landscape transformation emerge, I think, especially around renewable energy infrastructure, around remediation of toxic and abandoned lands, and at the intersection of carbon and land management. So first on energy infrastructure. The Green New Deal's desire to radically decarbonize the electric sector implicitly carries with it a vast expansion of renewable energy infrastructure. Because as we know, renewable energy has much less energy density compared to coal, oil, gas, and nuclear. And so speaking purely in terms of physical space, renewable energy's much larger spatial footprint on the landscape means that as the grid decarbonizes, we won't be able to rely on massive centralized power plants located far away. Um, and also we know that uh, many of the sunny and windy low-hanging fruit sites um, those with the highest renewable energy potential, or at least those closest to existing transmission lines and furthest from population centers, have already been built. And so our energy will increasingly need to come from places closer to where Americans live, work, and play, or at least be connected to them via vast new transmission networks. Certainly this kind of build-out of U.S. renewable energy generation infrastructure is physically possible. The constraints are social, economic, and political. Um, and so in practical terms, we can anticipate that the scaling up of renewable energy generation will create substantial conflicts over land use, which could potentially slow down the energy transition at a time when it in fact needs to be rapidly accelerated. Already in some states, a renewable energy has come into conflict with prime farmland or forest land. Um, and in other places, so-called green-on-green conflicts between wildlife preservation advocates and climate hawks around energy development on public lands has sparked opposition to new projects. Such conflicts can be reduced through careful design and planning in which renewable energy is deployed across the landscape in a manner that coexists with other land uses and enhances rather than competes with them, but only if spatial planning and landscape design are considered early in the infrastructure planning process. Onshore wind power can be designed to minimize habitat fragmentation or to augment elements of a place's cultural landscape with attention maybe to rhythm, spacing, alignment, experience, what we do as designers, rather than being haphazardly splayed across the land. Solar, solar too can be carefully designed to enhance agriculture, grazing, and pollinator habitat, um, increasingly something being called agrovoltaics, rather than as a monofunctional land use that competes with agricultural soils and then gets locked up behind a fence. 
Renewable energy expansion can play out along various potential pathways, but most high wind and solar scenarios suggest the need for a vast expansion of transmission lines, um, whether upgrading existing lines or building new ones. And it's easy to imagine that with these thousands of miles of new and upgraded transmission line, we'll be fiercely, uh, they'll be fiercely contested by landowners, by wilderness advocates, by those who don't want to see this infrastructure in their backyard. Here again is there a possibility of landscape designers rethinking the plain old transmission line easement. Can we reimagine it as potentially a system of multi-use trails to connect urban residents with their nearby wild lands? An idea that has come up time and again in landscape competitions and academic design work? Or do we just need to pay more to bury these new lines even though this will make the transition more expensive? Maybe that cost should be borne by urban residents um, and not by the people through whose backyards these lines will pass. Where transmission trails have actually been implemented is in places like Seattle, where the municipality owns the electric utility, although perhaps not the best designers. Um, municipal and public ownership is in fact, uh, was in fact a central tenet of the progressive movement. Ever since the 1880s through the New Deal, and the New Deal offers us fantastic examples of ener energy infrastructure built in the public interest, whoops, um, built in the public interest, with public ownership, and even foregrounding the power of design. The TVA, aside from being a public, federally owned corporation, also serves as perhaps the most holistic vision of New Deal planning, with its coupling of large-scale energy production with industrial development, landscape design, new towns, and regional public land management. Designers participated in articulating bold visions of what public works and public land could do for the public good, and then ensuring that this was legible. The TVA not only transformed the economy of a seven-state region, but also created a wholly new landscape narrative and design language for public works projects and public landscape. I'm not imagining that we're about to re-enter a golden age of dam building. Um, and anyway, the best big dam sites have already been dammed. Um, but we can certainly still draw lessons on design integration from the way that these particular dams were planned, detailed, and then integrated into their site and landscape. Um, but maybe a close cousin of hydroelectricity, um, of traditional dams, is pumped hydroelectric storage. And this might be worth considering as a cheap way to store electricity that could be much less disruptive to natural ecosystems. Um, something like an uh, inexpensive set of mega batteries to even out the fluctuations of our increasingly wind and solar powered grid. Here's the TVA mountain, TVA's massive Raccoon Mountain project outside of Chattanooga. Why not think of such a system as a network of public infrastructure which could incorporate um, landscape design to carefully integrate pumped hydro systems, perhaps with access for the public, including as a way of reusing some of the abandoned mine lands on public land, many of them the results of bankrupt mining operations. Mine lands have many of the necessary topographic criteria for energy storage, um, and unfortunately, many of these sites need remediation, but are unlikely to get it as is. Estimates uh, place the number of abandoned mine lands just in the US, just on public land alone, uh, anywhere between the tens of thousands and the hundreds of thousands, probably close to half a million. Um, the Green New Deal congressional resolution, in fact, speaks specifically about, quote, cleaning up existing hazardous waste and abandoned sites. Ben Beachy of the Sierra Club has argued for a, a green brigade of some sort that might do this kind of work. Specifically, um, brownfield remediation, wetland restoration, forest replanting, and forest fire management, for example. Here, the reference to the New Deal is most explicit, specifically to the Civilian Conservation Corps. The CCC, of course, was a huge force in transforming the American landscape, as Nancy just talked about. When the federal um, 
government purchased vast tracts of cut over private timberland in the 1910s and 20s, the CCC provided the muscle behind reforesting these vast swaths of cutover. What today is Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Washington Jefferson National Forest, so many other public forest lands and national parks. Um, and then of course over nine years, the CCC took these three million young men, um, unskilled, most from urban families on public assistance, and trained them to plant trees and uh, stabilize eroding hillsides, as well as build fire lookout towers and firefighting access roads and fight forest fires, as well as build recreation infrastructure. So what, kind, what would these kinds of jobs in restorative conservation work mean today? As with the CCC, there's a clear case to be made for the restoration of public lands through labor that benefits the workers and the public conservation ethos alike. Unlike the CCC, a contemporary Green New Deal Conservation Corps would also need to have a clear focus on climate change mitigation and adaptation. Forest fire reduction seems like a no-brainer, but we can also imagine mine reclamation across Appalachia, unabandoned mine lands across the West, potentially new forests as carbon sinks, or coastal protection work, mitigation wetlands for flood control, perhaps even wildlife connectivity infrastructure. And some of this is work that the federal government already knows how to do. The US Forest Service, for example, which used to be heavily focused on getting out the cut, um, has pivoted in some of its forests towards a focus on ecosystem restoration. In the late 90s, prompted by lawsuits around spotted owl habitat in the Pacific Northwest, the Forest Service figured out ways to rewrite its contracts from prioritizing timber extraction and logging roads to performing ecological support services through payments for ecosystem services and river restoration. Of course, the CCC also brought pushback that we need to be cognizant of. The um, CCC's appetite for skyline drives gave, gave us these incredible places in Shenandoah National Park and along the Blue Ridge Parkway, but also spawned the creation of the Wilderness Society, which then went and campaigned against the CCC's attempted ridgeline roads through the Green Mountains in Vermont, the Sierras in California, and the Presidential Range in, in New Hampshire. So just as an example, how do we, uh, uh, thinking of this today, ensure that a Green New Deal Conservation Corps doesn't make these kinds of overreach, that it uses the best available ecological science while relying on uh, probably a uh, quickly trained up workforce? The benefits of getting millions of young Americans out into the backcountry are potentially huge. We must be aware of cautionary lessons from the New Deal, however, as the Green New Deal resolution, resolution explicitly calls out. For example, during the New Deal, the CCC was segregated and fewer slots were made available to African-American enrollees than to whites. African-American units were relegated to less interesting work and kept out of the public spotlight. Um, and so the Green New Deal resolution explicitly recognizes that, you know, as many members of frontline and vulnerable communities were excluded from these uh, massive mobilizations, um, and it resolves to counteract historic injustices and to make sure that the good green jobs and especially the economic benefits accrue more equitably to all communities as part of what the text refers to as a fair and just transition. Hopefully this time around, a new CCC would not be mainly composed of young white men, but actually youth of all backgrounds, ethnicities, races, and genders. And so in thinking about <clears throat> Today's brownfield reclamation and remediation challenges compared to the 1930s, some of the brute force manpower and funding challenges of forestry and environmental restoration remain the same, but there's this whole new generation of brownfields and toxic landscapes that we need to be cognizant of. These scarred landscapes necessitate new techniques for remediation and raise new challenges in terms of working safely on. And so how will we ensure that the new conservation workforce, especially if it's weighted towards vulnerable communities and communities of color, is not being placed in harm's way? 
We need to consider this with, extre with extreme care. Despite its flaws, the New Deal still represents a moment in American landscape history that is resonant today for several reasons. It was a moment when public lands and landscapes held unequivocal social value, and their wise management was a civic calling. With projects like the TVA, planners working for the federal government managed to actively expand the public understanding of environmental conservation and radically scale up the idea of what planning and landscape was capable of in terms of holistically empowering large territories. These projects were most successful when designers were at the table, and designers took this role seriously by articulating public visions of what public works and public land could do for the public good. Today, landscape architecture and planning professionals may make the case for green infrastructure or for landscape as infrastructure, but the design professions as a whole must be much more forceful in making a case uh, for new visions of public landscape. The Green New Deal is our one-time chance to do this. The landscape architecture profession also has some internal work to do in grappling with its own issues on race and class and representation, and potentially working on the Green New Deal might bring a critical opportunity for landscape architects to partner with and learn from incredible organizers in labor, in environmental and social justice movements. The great potential of the Green New Deal is that in proposing to holistically rethink agriculture, energy infrastructure, carbon sequestration, and brownfield remediation, which are strands of the discipline that um, are historically distinct, but yet overlap with the kinds of restorative landscape work that contemporary landscape architecture has been pursuing and theorizing, it can bring together new coalitions in pursuit of, new kinds of, public, of, a, of a new kind of public landscape agenda. The Green New Deal also offers the potential to rediscover the power of public imagination, as AOC has put it. And the design professionals need to respond to that challenge with solidarity to both New Deal's, uh, the, New Deal's, uh, the Green New Deal's coalition partners, um, as well as with bold and smart design advocacy, and then hopefully with a new generation of inspiring public works. Thank you. And last, you'll hear from Mary Hegler. That's not intimidating at all. <laughs> um, so, good morning. Um, turns out I'm the only one without slides, and that is fine. Um, <laughs> um, so, I, I was really, really excited to be here, and thank you so much, Billy and Daniel and Kate, for having me. Um, and I thought for a really long time about what I was going to say. Um, because I have a really different type of expertise as a communications professional, as a writer, than my fellow panelists. Um, and I often think that, that that expertise is devalued and, and underestimated in this space. Um, so I finally decided, why don't I talk about that? Um, so while I may not speak the language of policy or science, I do know a thing or two about language in general. I know words, I know storytelling, and that is not a small thing. Because um, you can have all the right ideas, you can have all the brilliant ideas in the world, but if you don't have the right brilliant ideas to communicate them, they die. Um, in fact, if you can show me a revolution that didn't have language, I would be very interested to know how it had any direction. Um, so as my fellow panelists have already outlined, the New Deal was a big solution to a really big problem. Um, it left a whole lot of people out, people who kind of look like me. Um, 
but still, it was a major overhaul of American politics, of American government, and I would say that it revolutionized the way that we think of government um, and revealed a lot of what it can do. Um, and sure enough, the New Deal had a really elaborate communication strategy, one that was marked with optimism and consistency and a certain intimacy that came through FDR's fireside chats and radio addresses. He and his speechwriters <laughs> uh, managed to make the legislation feel both ambitious and inevitable, both the best choice and the only choice. Um, and the Green New Deal aims even higher than its namesake. This time, we're not just talking about the economy, though it's that too. And we're not just talking about saving the country, even though, of course, it's that too. Well, this time, what we're talking about is no short of saving life on Earth. And this time, it's not acceptable to leave anybody behind, even though that was never acceptable <laughs> to begin with. But this is big. This is everything. And it's no secret that I think that storytelling in the climate movement is a little bit stale. Um, I think that it needs a major reboot, and I think we need a new narrative. A narrative that recognizes that these mythical children and grandchildren are not on the way, that they're here. One of them is talking to you right now. Um, a narrative that recognizes that hope is only one of many emotions at play here and anger and fear are equally valid, so is depression and anxiety, and hell, so is confusion. Um, a story that doesn't let its villain hide in between the lines and is bold enough to lay the blame for the crisis, not with individuals, but with the industries that actually created it, um, and with the governments that helped them, subsidized them, and covered their tracks. And I want a language that stops trying to, to qualify the unqualifiable. I'm sick of hearing that climate change is probably the greatest threat to humankind. There's no more probably. There's no more almost. This, this is the biggest threat we have ever faced as a species. Um, and more than anything, if we're not going to leave anybody behind, this new narrative can't cut any corners. It can't omit any characters or any storylines. It has to tell the whole story. Like the policy itself, it has to include the voices of frontline communities. It has to integrate the interrelated, intersectional realities between climate action and police violence and reproductive rights and worker rights. None of those stories are independent of one another. And telling them separately is at best a half-truth. So this is going to mean that we have to talk about climate with a whole new language. Um, and it's a language we won't find in science books or policy books. Um, even though those resources are very, very important. But policy and science are the languages of education, and we are no longer trying to educate people. We are trying to activate them. We're not trying to change what people know. We're trying to change what people believe, or more accurately, what they believe in, and those are not the same things. Um, but that also doesn't mean that we have to start from scratch. The language that we need does exist. In fact, there's a lot that we can hold on to from the language of the, of the original New Deal. There was ambition, there was courage, there was nothing to fear but fear itself. All that good stuff. But I, I would argue against leaning too hard into the optimism of the New Deal because if we're honest with ourselves, we don't know how this is going to turn out. We know that there's a lot of possibilities, and I think that's actually where the beauty lies, in the language of possibility. Um, but there's even more rhetorical lessons that we can mine from history. 
I've said it before and I'll say it again, that climate change is not the first existential threat. It is not. People have fought for their lives before. From colonialism to slavery to indigenous suicide, uh, genocide to Jim Crow to apartheid, people have done this before. And the road ahead of them was not always clear. It was not even always visible. Tomorrow was not always certain. But still, they survived. And the words that they left behind for us leave us a framework for the language that we need to create for now. There's so much that we can borrow from the words of Arundhati Roy and Fred Hampton and Sojourner Truth and Sitting Bull and Nelson Mandela and Gandhi. And of course, there's my personal hero, James Baldwin, and I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't quote him today. Um, he said on one occasion that the government is the creation of the people. It is responsible to the people, and the people are responsible for it. And it's time to take that responsibility very, very seriously. So. We have the vocabulary to build the language of possibility and liberation, and the moment demands it. So let's get to work. Thank you. Now you'll hear a panel conversation moderated by Karen McCloskey and Francesca Ammon. Thank you, everyone, for those very powerful um, and hopeful presentations. Um, we, sorry. <laughs> Um, we know we've heard from you, and we know that the benefits of the Green New Deal were not distributed equitably, um, whether it was in the farm bills that for, or Conservation Corps that further segregated by race and gender. Jen, a lot of your work has looked at the redlining um, in mortgages, and that's something that we're still seeing the effects of today. You've argued very powerfully for race and gender equity has to be the driver of climate policy, not the other way, not something that just sits along parallel with it. Um, and then, Nick, you talked a lot about, um, in some of your other work, the, the negative environmental impacts of some of the New Deal projects in terms of monoculture planting and use, the use of chemicals. And so we've seen historically that um, what benefited one group of people or areas certainly did not, that had detrimental effects in others. Um, and so I'm just curious if you think that the, the Green New Deal resolution is very clear in the interlinking of justice and action on climate and jobs. But do you think in, in practice um, it, there are some challenges in terms of the not being delivered as the blunt force instrument that the New Deal was? Um, Phoebe Cutler, who wrote on the public landscapes of the New Deal, you know, looking back at all of the programs, um, and Jen, you've pointed out the importance of history, is that um, because urgency ruled the day, a lot of things were not considered. And you're all coming from very different kind of backgrounds and working with groups of people, so I'm curious if you could speculate on that. It's directed at everyone, not <laughs> or anyone. Am I sitting? I mean, I can I can say just a, a few things that come to mind. Um, uh, it's I think you're raising exactly the issues that are going to be really hard to deal with, especially if it's things like um, kind of. Uh, uh, restorative environmental work and uh, ecological restoration, which is that it's, it's rarely shovel-ready and that usually needs a whole lot of study. Um, and especially on these uh, kinds of uh, toxic legacy landscapes where maybe we don't have as many good baselines or examples to work off of. And so maybe what uh, will be needed is something like a new kind of administration that can deal with uncertainty and yet not be paralyzed by it. Um, 
what comes to mind is uh, some form of adaptive management where there can be a forceful response and yet kind of uh, an, an openness to observing what is working and what is not and then adjusting along the way um, before things get too far down the road. I suppose my response is right now there's a great deal of excitement about this Green New Deal concept and um, the analogy for me is, as I've told you, this story of planners and social scientists and real estate people getting behind this idea of, you know, we need to conserve cities. But when you drill down, I only had, you know, 12 minutes, you find that even the city planners and the social scientists and the real estate industry who worked together to get policies passed had totally different views of what should actually happen. So planners cared a lot more about social and economic issues, racial integration, the real estate industry cares about preserving property values. Um, we don't have a model for having this all play out well, but I think some scrutiny about what maybe went wrong um, you know, might, might be useful here. I wonder, hearing your comments about um, the administrative processes, if there's anything in, in what you found that might be relevant. Um, definitely. I mean, it's fascinating to read about the New Deal uh, and the way it changed over the, over time, and then what you realize is that it was it was I mean there were dozens of programs and they were constantly being revised along the way and it was a highly highly political process. So for instance, in 1933, the Public Works Administration was created and Harold Ickes was put in charge, and one of the um, one of the debates um, that was always being had was whether public works was, was a good vehicle for uh, relief. Were you putting enough people to work, uh, you know, in just in building these massive projects? So the WPA, which started in 1935, the Works Progress Administration, was in many ways the answer to that. Um, because the WPA built smaller projects that could be done faster, and it was also the program that put, you know, that had the federal music project, the writers project, um, that was, you know, produced all of the murals that we now see, that produced uh, the, the books, the, the guides to the different states. And then, of course, there was constant infighting. Harold, you know, I, I mentioned that Harold Ickes ran the PWA. Um, another really important New Dealer, Harry Hopkins, ran the WPA and they were constantly fighting for the funds. Hmm. So it's, it's just fascinating to see that, that politics was actually thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly a part of it, and nothing was ever done. You know, so I think that the way to see a Green New Deal is a constant process. And in some ways, what's happened with the New Deal is the New Deal built a coalition that changed American life and that was and then has been steadily taken apart in the past 40 years. So in a way, the ultimate lesson is no battle is ever won. Um, uh, just to build on that, I mean, I, I think, I mean, at some level, we shouldn't be surprised that mm -hmm. uh, property developers are quite interested in property values, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, and that their interests run counter to uh, you know, working class communities. Mm -hmm. I, I think that the, the thing that worries me about the Green New Deal is precisely that the, the movement building component uh, is, I mean, it's written into the legislation, but that's not how you build a movement. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the, 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 the bill calls on the Green New Deal movement, and there's language about that, 
Uh, and that's great, but that puts the cart before the horse. Uh, I, I think that what, what I'm, I'm concerned about is that without this grassroots organizing, uh, what will happen is a sort of surrender to a certain kind of technocracy. Uh, and the, the dangers of that are that that, you know, that technoc technocracy can present itself as an anti-politics machine, uh, that it can be a way of, of scooping out uh, the, 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 the vibrant part of what makes the Green Revolution, uh, the, the, sorry, the, new, the Green New Deal, a, I, I get my revolutions and deals mixed, make, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but the, that makes it a, a sort of site of struggle. And I think that that's, that's something that, that's tremendously important. And in fact, I, sort of inspired by, by you, Mary, I, mean, I think one of the voices that's not at the table uh, in the current language of, and discussion of the Green New Deal is uh, folk outside the United States. I mean, to some extent, obviously, this is a, a bill uh, proposed for the US Congress, and so it is going to be a bit parochial. Uh, but it's not going to talk, uh, talking about uh, U.S. responsibilities for uh, climate damage caused elsewhere uh, in the depth that one would like. But I think that there are voices and stories that, uh, that are stories of U.S. environmental harm uh, that, that are global that need to be part of this discussion, and I don't see an easy way for, the, for them to articulate at the moment with, with what's happening in, the, um, in, in, in the, the policy process as imagined in the bill. Yeah. I'm not terribly sure you know, how to do that either, but I am excited that the Green New Deal is more responsive to the science than the Paris Agreement was. And I think that um, this conversation that you raised about thinking about the international side of this too um, is one of those potential challenges that we need to keep in mind. We talked about African Americans in particular who um, were on the negative side of some of the, you know, the compromises that were made. Will international populations pay the price for our renewable energy? And, and, and how can we, how honest are we being about that right now? How honest can we be as we try to gain, gain excitement and movement? But what should we be doing to, at the outset, to cut off as much as possible those kind of perpetuated injustices within our country, outside as well? How can we be really mindful about that? As all, and so many of you looked back on the negative consequences, how can we learn from that and, and organize a process that tries to subvert that this time around? Well, well, one start would be the United States trying to be an example. Because when, so in the 1930s, the depression was global. And uh, in the 1932 election, uh, a number of people thought that Franklin Roosevelt needed to take dictatorial powers, just as you know, Hitler and Mussolini were taking dictatorial powers and you needed a very strong state. And he refused to do that, choosing instead to work with Congress. But that was a really important um, example to set at that moment. So I think that given the, I mean, we have a lot of ground to cover and once again being an example for the world, but I think that that would be just the, you know, the first thing. If, if a new president really starts to put in place the components of a Green New Deal and then started to exert global leadership, because you can't do that if we don't have a good example. But I wonder is the, sorry, go ahead Mary. Um, I think the easy answer is to invite you know, more people to the table, but I think it goes a bit deeper than that in the sense that you need to speak a language that they can understand. 
Um, and climate policy is always talked about in this really scientific, jargony kind of way, and people had a lot, have a lot of threshold anxiety about it. What I hear from a lot of people is like, I want to talk about climate change, but I don't, I'm not a scientist. Like, girl, me neither, right? Like, it doesn't really, you don't need that. Um, like, because it is so much more than just science now. It's a justice issue, and people understand justice from a very young age. Like, you understand, like, your brother got a bigger piece of candy than you did, right? And that's not fair. I do understand so, that. Exactly. <laughs> My brother always got more candy than me. It was kind of messed up. But anyway, um, so if we talk about it in language that is more accessible, then more people can participate in the conversation. Um, and I think that's what's, what's been missing. So, well, I was going to say, just going back to the language and what Francesca's asking, and the, is the Converse, not the resolution, but the conversation around the Green New Deal energy transition being um, upfront enough or about the, the externalities that, in terms of what that means for producing. I mean, our windmills, solar panels aren't made out of trees, and so there's going to be a huge uptick in coal to fire. Well, not necessarily, but right now our massive steel is produced through coal burning and things like that. So our, so in terms of the international, like where we're getting our materials and is there, it, it does call for an, ash, an international understanding of what a Green New Deal in the United States actually means in terms of externalities. And probably just a, a, maybe a, a deeper honesty about where our materials and built environment come from every day and kind of uh, maybe a, a higher legibility of those in the larger public because I think it does go back to, um, uh, you know, with uh, extraction of all kinds, not just extraction of rare earths for, you know, renewable energy sources. You know, there's, there's a lot of international flows that, uh, uh, you know, target the global south for the benefit of consumption in the global north. I think the same thing could be said for a lot of the electronics that we use. And so I think, you know, just being more mindful of where materials uh, come from and their environmental impact in other places goes hand in hand with kind of an increased legibility of carbon flows and back to kind of like uh, being aware of uh, uh, making sure that uh, farms are being compensated for the carbon work that they could be doing, you know? And right now, as Raj's article points out, um, farmers will do what they're paid to do and a lot of times that is at odds with these kinds of restorative practices. So the more we can align the policy with the kind of beneficial practice we'd like to see, the more likely we are to get those. Um, I, I wanted to uh, just engage a bit more with Francesca with, with your idea of <clears throat> excuse me, uh, what sort of uh, material is there in the process to, to be able to uh, bring other voices to the table. I, I think that there's uh, something very promising about the confluence of this idea of a just transition and reparations. Uh, and the reparations debate that's happening right now. I mean, uh, right now, of course, no one really looks to the United States as a, a beacon for moral authority uh, <laughs> on, on any grounds, frankly. But, but, but when, when it, I, I think that something that involves that sort of reckoning uh, with, with the past, uh, you know, not a transparency not, and a visibility not just of the sort of flows that exist now, but their sedimented and buried traces uh, is something that is part of what it means to have a just transition. Mm -hmm. uh, and that just transition is, w w was always an international, I mean, the, 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 the processes that created the climate crisis have always been planetary. 
uh, and uh, the U.S. has operated at a planetary level in, in terms of securing its resources. Um, the discussion about reparations for uh, enslaved people is also unnecessary. It must be a discussion about uh, the, you know, the, the, the the peoples who have suffered the, sort of the, the yoke of American imperialism for, 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 for centuries. And I think that, that that is a way of bringing that conversation into the Green New Deal and thinking about a broader a reckoning of, of what a, a just transition might be. Um, another thread that I heard in several of the papers was um, you know, this idea of the importance of analogy, of language, um, and thinking about these terms and the pluses and minuses of the big, big umbrella terms, right? So Jen's work really reminds us um, how widely under, well, known, not necessarily understood, the term conservation was, right, um, during this earlier period, um, and how it provided an overarching framework and brought a lot of people in, but then on the downside, allowed people to reinterpret in their own ways and the migration of these terms from science to social science, that there are risks there as well. So, you know, thinking about that process that happened in the past, um, I think about terms today, resilience is another term that has kind of migrated in this way. Um, the term blight still exists, of course. Um, and then this idea of green, too, uh, that, that has moved. And, and do we always understand what these things mean? Is there clarity about definitions? Does there need to be? Again, how do we think about some of the, 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 the potential downsides of these broad frameworks that then kind of get maneuvered in different ways, but everyone thinks they're kind of saying the same thing? So just thinking about language and metaphor and analogy, um, are these terms green deal, I mean, new deal, green, um, is it good to hitch our wagon to this term new deal too? Is it green? How do we think about language here? How important is this? And yeah, where should, what should we do on, on that front? Yeah, it's really important. Uh -huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not surprised you say that. Say more. Um, we can't have the conversation without it. Um, I think. I thought about uh, you know the term Green New Deal. I mean, nobody's asking me to name it or anything, but I think it's a pretty good name. It, New Deal is probably the most well-known piece of legislation in history, um, and I don't see why not. You know, do it better <laughs> this time, right? Like, so and it has a pretty good feeling among people. Like, people have positive feelings about the New Deal, um, and you kind of understand what it is before you've even seen the resolution before you've seen the legislation. So I think it's probably the best name it could have. So I would argue that in, I think the new narratives that you talked about are really important. But the specific languages, I mean, certainly you know, the question of whether to call something, I mean, the various things that have been called over the years, solar or green or sustainable or resilient, I mean, that conversation can become academic pretty quickly. And if we actually, ha I mean, think about it, if we actually have a government that is going to, you know, just take on the issue of decarbonizing the economy, it almost doesn't matter what it's called if the legislation mm -hmm. passes. So uh, I think that it's, it's sort of more important to be focusing on the particular grounded stories. And I don't think that the pol in the politics, the specific terms like green or resilient are going to be... Um, essential. I think it's going to be the, ac the actions. You know, what, will, what will the policies look like? And there will have to be so many of them. In some ways, I'm thinking maybe the um, openness of what Green New Deal means for different people might be a positive at this point, because it is immediately 
um, it immediately plants the flag that this is not just going to be a technocratic conversation around energy transitions or just carbon numbers, but brings in all of that historical legacy of the fight uh, for social transformation of the entire economy, social justice, all the baggage of the New Deal, all of the good, all of the good stuff, and already the conversation with the Green New Deal has radically transformed kind of climate politics, I think, and what is possible to imagine even. Um, the actual then green on green battles, you know, and the um, uh, conservationists versus climate hawks, I think that's gonna get worked out and it needs to, um, but that kind of can happen behind the scenes. Uh, I think in general, the public knows what green kind of is and they can look at the green parties in Europe and they can get a sense of what their values are. Um, if I can add one thing, I think that what I'm concerned about in, in this space, what often happens in progressive spaces and climate spaces, we cater our language too much to our opposition and not to our own base. And so we're constantly renaming things and redefining things because, oh, the <laughs> Republicans will use it against us, or who cares at this point? Mm -hmm. They're never going to agree with you, right? Like just <laughs> call things what they are. <laughs> Um, and we, we need to get out of that really terrible habit. But is, I mean, just to play devil's advocate. <laughs> the devil doesn't need an advocate. No, they'll up <laughs> by himself. But, but, but I mean, is, is the Green New Deal anti-American? Uh, uh, the reason I'm asking that is just, the, the, there's, I mean, for example, I mean, do, do you remember the Sebastian Gorka uh, episode where he was talking about the Green New Deal at uh, CPAC earlier on this year, and he was like, the Green New Deal, it's, you know, it's like a watermelon, it's green on the outside, but red communist on the inside. <laughs> and and, and, and they're, they're going to come for your hamburgers, they, they, they're going to improve your home, and they're going to take your pickup trucks. And everyone, everyone in CPAC is like, boo, that's bad, we don't want a home improvement. Uh, and, <laughs> but, 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 but I think that there's, there's, something, there's something there about identity and nation that is important to wrestle with. Um, and I, 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 I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious about what, what sort of storytelling is more embracing or, or, or do we, embracing of the idea of or transforming what it means to be American. I don't care what Seb Gorka thinks. <laughs> I really, really don't. And I think that these are all bad faith arguments and we're just going to keep going around and around in these circles, right? And it reminds me a lot of the, the language of the civil rights movement. Like as soon as you cater to whatever these Dixiecrats said in public, like, they would just go further and further until they were like, okay, fine, I'm racist. You know, and then it was like, oh, so there was no point arguing with you anyway because you never wanted to get on board with this. And you really, these are not good faith actors. And I don't understand why we keep catering to the lowest common denominator. And I don't understand why they get to define what's American and what's not. And it doesn't really matter what's American and what's not because this is life and death. Mm -hmm. If I can play devil's advocate from a slightly is different... Is okay in your home? It's mostly that I want to plug my younger sister's research because she, she just got tenure at Wharton. She studies environment and law. 
and uh, her research is about the military environmental complex. And basically what it's found is that people who are more politically conservative when they see these issues framed as a national security issue are way more likely to um, you know, support policy and other interventions um, that might align with some of the things we're talking about today under the rubric of the Green New Deal. So I do think sometimes it is useful to, you know, there are a lot of people mobilizing for the Green New Deal, but the New Deal itself is very alienating to a certain group of people who have a particular set of assumptions about it. So it is worth being at least reflective when we, when we pick one metaphor or the other. But it will always be a fight and always be alienating. So I argue that two words that are really important in the Green New Deal are public and private. Mm -hmm. Because we have been in a long period of, 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 uh, in which um, there's been, privatization has been a triumphant ideology. And we will need, I think for a Green New Deal to succeed, it will need to make a case that it needs to be a, a large, large public project, which will mean Oh, once again, uh, embracing the idea that there's a role for big government and not turning that into a pejorative. Um, so there was, I don't know if anybody saw um, earlier this year, there was a, a clip that went viral uh, after, at the Davos conference. It was a clip of a Dutch historian named Rutger Bregman who, who, twist, who turned that conference on its head by at one point saying, you know, I, he, he said, everybody's here talking about philanthropy and the importance of philanthropy. And he said, I feel like I'm at a firefighter at a conference where we can't talk about water because what we need to talk about is taxes. And he said, taxes, 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 anything else is bullshit. <laughs> and then somebody in the audience got up and said, well, show me a country that has ever prospered with a high marginal tax rate. And he says, I'll show you the United States. In 1950, the period of your greatest prosperity, you had a 91% marginal tax rate. So in some ways, I think part of, part of the, the narrative is once again saying that, that um, this, is, this is the large public project and it is about all of us. And, all, and that's why I showed that quote from Franklin Roosevelt, who was masterful at making the argument that the government is us, it is the voters. So if we're paying taxes, we're paying taxes to our own benefit. So I do think that that's part of, uh, that's a big part of the new narrative. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, coalition and constituent building, which came out in some of the presentations. Um, if we, as diverse as the New Deal programs were, it was at a time when there was a 25% unemployment rate and priority number one was getting unemployed people back to work and back to work quickly. Uh, the Green New Deal resolution has jobs, of course, central, but justice um, and action on climate change are completely intertwined. They're inseparable, uh, and rightly so. Um, but when we, when we think about um, what jobs and growth meant in the context of the New Deal and World War II mobilization, we know that how we talk about growth can't mean the same thing as it's meant in the past. Um, and so just in terms of um, the coalition building, it seems that um, climate change has reached a point of visibility as a, as a big mobilizer. Um, but do you think that the conversation around um, 
the inseparability of jobs and equity and climate has reached the same level that, that people, because you still see in mainstream media, um, people talking about, well, the climate is so urgent, we have to deal with that first, and then we'll deal with the kind of equity issue or the climate justice issue. Okay, that wasn't clear enough then, <laughs> because, because no one's answering, so. Um, well, actually, so, so California has just passed a new law that would make the gig, that would really make the gig economy um, very difficult. Pass a law that attempts to define what an employee is. So naturally, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash are pledging to spend $90 million to fight it. And I just, I think that we, there's, there's widespread awareness in this country that unemployment may not be 25%, but conditions of employment for many, many people are, are difficult and precarious. So it feels that that would need to be, I, I think that argument would, um, it feels like it's, it's the moment for this argument and that it doesn't need to be separated. It also seems like maybe there's, um, I don't know, I, I'm really fascinated by this question of the kind of the rural mobilization and what that might mean or even like how do you make the case um, outside of, you know, the kind of densest and most coastal places for the Green New Deal and, and thinking about kind of like um, not a 24% or 25% unemployment rate, but certainly things are not great in yeah. rural America. And so what would it mean to have a federal jobs guarantee and what would those jobs look like? Um, and then similarly in a lot of urban America, things are not great either. And, you know, there's been a whole uh, kind of a uh, uh, lot of uh, thinking about what could those jobs m mean. And at the same time, we know that like solar installers don't necessarily employ a whole lot of people of color. And when they do, like they don't necessarily treat them the same way. And so there's a, a kind of a, a lot of internal grappling with like what a good green job is. And I think that's um, uh, to the point where, you know, it's not just men in hard hats, you know, and how do we actually start to compensate that kind of labor, which is a very different kinds of conversation than um, you know, the traditional kind of like uh, uh, shovel uh, guys building roads and bridges as a way to get people employed. And I think you know, when it comes to reimagining the future of work, there's, there are places where the union movement has been prohibited from going uh, and where, where it's been very hard to unionize. And those areas are precisely around farm work uh, and around reproductive labor, around care work. Um, and those, it seems to me, are where the good jobs are, the meaningful work is, and right now it is the underpaid work, but you know, the, the work of building soil facility, the, the, the work of, of feeding a community, the work of caring for a community, uh, particularly a, a community that's aging. Uh, this seems to me the good work that the, the, the Green New Deal has to articulate with, and I, we're not seeing so much, of, uh, you know, so much discussion about that, and I'd quite like to see more. I mean, you pointed out historically, I mean, when, the, and today, the farming coalition is obviously not a homogenous group on its own. Um, and it's 1.5% of the workforce, I think, is, is in farming. Um, so we're, we're talking about a lot of different um, constituents who are, did not historically with the New Deal or even now um, necessarily agree <laughs> on how it should be moved forward. So I think, Nancy, your point about the 
it's not just about setting it out, it's the constant battle of um, adjusting as, as we go is important. Um, building on the, this conversation about uh, jobs and labor and, and really something that you said, uh, Nick, about what, what are the jobs, getting to design too, what, what are the jobs that we um, I think are going to be in our field that are going to be the, the green jobs? And we think about the New Deal and um, of course, those men, uh, job, you know, cutting down the trees and building the roads, we think of that, but um, you know, there were writers and artists also and um, photographers and um, architects who were documenting buildings. There were a, a diverse array of jobs. Um, and so what, does that, what do you think that can look like today? Um, building upon, I think, some nice varied examples, although uh, not as much diversity in terms of the population who had access to all those things, of course. Uh, but how, again, how can we do that better? And what does it mean for, for design in terms of what those those really uh, you know, viable green um, working class jobs can be too. I think part of it goes back to the uh, point that Nancy's making about how we need to redefine what uh, kind of work it's okay for the government to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, it connects with um, you know, the, a conversation around uh, like why was there so much excellent or at least interesting art integrated into a lot of these uh, projects. You know, Daniel just um, uh, had a great interview about uh, public housing and like the incredible amount of craft that went into some of this New Deal public housing and certainly European traditions that really value a lot of that and that, you know, is a lot of work to, to do that well. And so uh, we can't just uh, have, if the goal is to employ a lot of um, skilled uh, professional architectural design, what have you, uh, labor, um, public projects can't just be the simplest, most stripped down, the most austere, you know, the most bare bones uh, versions, but actually need to revel in this case for uh, public imagination, right? I have to really embrace the sense of civic qualities and, and really do that through design persuasion, which I think we've, we've, uh, haven't exercised those muscles in quite a while. To, to build then on, on your housing point, if, if I might, um, um, we talked about housing a little bit, I think, in the, in the presentations, but uh, when I think of some of the big consequences for housing during the New Deal, there's kind of two ends of this. The public housing uh, on the low end, um, right, um, became a, a lesser, much less funded uh, relative to the government subsidies for mortgages for private home purchases, right? And this is the moment that really cements the kind of two-tiered system of government intervention in housing that historians like Gail Radford and others have documented. Um, and housing is, is surely, uh, is clearly mentioned explicitly um, in the Green New Deal bill, um, but of course it needs to be fleshed out. And so um, building on some of those legacies of how we, we used to do public housing um, in a, a more engaged way, uh, what possibilities do people see too in, in the realm of, of housing? Um, uh, does the, the New Deal inspire, or, or should, uh, uh, should it uh, worry us about uh, the way that it really set in motion this, this two-tier, um, you know, not a lot of, I mean, I think a lot of us in this room understand about the vast subsidies that uh, mortgages represent, uh, mortgage tax deduction, relative to the much more modest amounts that are given to affordable housing today, and this is really kind of set in motion by legislation uh, during the New Deal. Um, so how can we uh, counteract that, and, and what realistic possibilities might exist, too? Talking about kind of negative legacies, um, 
help people get housing, but we are entrenched in this system now that was set in place then. I mean, I, I, I defer to, to Daniel, who's been writing about this more recently, but I think in general, um, like, there was uh, a lot of goodwill and good intent on the part of some of this uh, New Deal planning and also a whole lot of just, like, total omission of understanding of what was going to be the consequence, right? And we ended up with these, you know, hugely problematic reorganizations of urban America. Um, so I think, you know, if we're talking about a massive new investment in public housing and uh, housing security, uh, uh, it's, it's going to be really hard and it needs to work hard to actually uh, integrate, um, you know, all kinds of good neighborhood design and considerations, uh, you know, mixed um, uh, diversity of incomes and make sure that people have security in the places they are, that they're able to grow strong community roots, like all the, uh, all the impacts on social infrastructure that um, uh, might influence the uh, ability of a community to weather climate stresses all come down to the physical and built environment in which they live. And so if, you know, weak and vulnerable neighborhoods are not repaired and given resources and empowered through massive public investment, they're going to have a lot of trouble coping with these stressors. So I think it can't just be about design, but it also can't just be about economics and has to somehow find those, those connections. Housing is one area where we definitely need a new narrative because we've turned public housing over the decades into a pejorative. Uh, and yet, in many of our cities, um, professionals who graduate from programs like Penn can't afford um, market rate housing. So it just, it just seems like that has just become, I mean, housing is, is certainly one of the fields in which you see the grotesque inequality that defines America right now playing out. So again, I mean, that feels like it needs a very, very holistic solution involving not only, I mean, acknowledgement of all the ways in which uh, the middle class has been helped um, through policy, but just rethinking it and, and um, cities making a commitment to every single, I mean, a public commitment to, to the um, infrastructure and environment of all neighborhoods. I mean, that would, in this city, where you can just sort of divide the quadrants of the city and see where the public has made a commit uh, has made an investment. Um, on Places Journal, we published an article earlier this year on Nice Town um, by Elizabeth Greenspan, and um, one of the argument it's it's a, a poignant narrative about the efforts of a relatively poor community in North Philadelphia to build uh, a park that would cost about $10 million at a moment when the city is pouring hundreds of millions of dollars to, into support for parks in the wealthiest parts of the city. So it seems like it's not simply just a matter of looking at housing. It's just a matter of, of, of again, I mean, creating a, a new narrative about public investment in our cities and our infrastructure, not just for housing. And I don't think I've said that super articulately, but... I mean, it does seem that, that under the, the current sort of housing regime, uh, low-income communities are prohibited from being beautiful. 
mm -hmm. uh, because as soon as low-income communities start uh, you, it, D developing things that uh, higher income communities find uh, beautiful and, and, uh, and worthwhile and, and exciting, uh, that's when the graduate students move in and then you know mm -hmm. they're, they're the very spear tip of gentrification. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and then things, things are going downhill. And, uh, but but I, I wonder whether this idea of beauty and sensuousness, um, which when you look at some of the, the, the New Deal era art and you look at uh, the, you know, the, the architecture, it is beautiful and it's gorgeous. Uh, and I wonder whether the ideas that we've used successfully in the food movement about recruiting through sensuality and joy um, is also a way of recruiting uh, and, and uh, getting at some of the, some of the issues around, uh, around housing in the Green New Deal. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not an architect, uh, but, I'm, uh, but I, I, I do think that the, that the food movement has understood quite well the importance of sensuousness and of pleasure and of joy. Um, not to, to, to grow the movement uh, and also to be able to bring uh, the different Americas into, into conversation with each other in ways that I think are, are often very fruitful. Well, it's maybe not also, you know, it's not just beauty as in ornament or, you know, murals. It's beauty as in, like, daylight and windows that can open and, like, not getting cancer from your internal finishes and resinous, you know, furniture uh, made out of MDF and other kind of binders. So it, it, there might be a, a whole kind of transformation in how we see beautiful homes and architecture as kind of expanding the, the purview of design, which it's not an expansion. Architects already mm -hmm. are concerned with building systems, with mechanical systems, with, you know, uh, making sure that a building is both accessible, efficient, you know, uh, and comfortable. Um, and so maybe in the future or, or now, we need to be also assessing, you know, is public housing safe? Does it provide community infrastructure and support during times of stress? Like, if the grid goes down, will you bake in your apartment, like after her Superstorm Sandy? Or is there, you know, built-in support already inside of the architecture and urban design considerations? And, you know, um, making sure that we don't stick public housing with outdated, uh, you know, uh, uh, boilers, but actually kind of use this as a moment to jumpstart innovation and scaling up of heat pumps, you know, and other kinds of infrastructure that we know we'll need to scale and make much more affordable um, if we're going to do massive, massive uh, building retrofits over 10 years for a much bigger slice of the private sector. Yeah. I would also say that until those things are done, spinning a new narrative around public housing is, can be actually kind of dangerous because uh, there's a reason it became a pejorative. It became a pejorative because it wasn't invested in. So before we can tell a new story about investment, we need to change what the reality is because otherwise it's not a new narrative, it's just a lie. Hmm. <laughs> but part of that new narrative could be, the, again, it, the idea that in, in public, that housing is a public responsibility for everyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, it goes beyond simply the way it looks. I mean, for another an example would be of a policy that we've um, somewhat abandoned is a mechanism that was invented, I think, in New York City, the Limited Equity Cooperative. Um, on places, we did an article a few years ago about the way that um, this, this financing mechanism is being used in European cities to build in permanent affordability. And I think most of you know what the limited equity co-op is. You, you're just limited into, in how much you can resell your property. 
And that's what made New York City affordable for generations for, for middle class people. And we've, we've sort of abandoned that here. And, we've, and the, so the housing market, it's either you know, fully market rate or it's public. Mm -hmm. And I think there needs to be a, a much more nuanced spectrum. So that's the new narrative about how, in some ways, all of us are part of public housing. So, I mean, we've been hearing all the different ways that designers were, um, built environment professionals were involved in the original New Deal, um, from planning and housing to historic preservation and all of the artists who were employed. Um, do you, looking back at the New Deal, do you think that um, designers in those contexts were leading or following? And by leading, I mean that there were projects that were thought out and uh, designed and were kind of waiting for that right moment. And I can think of a few like Benton Mackay's Appalachian Trail was conceived in 1921. It didn't get funding till the New Deal. There were a couple of Olmstead projects. But from what I know, a lot of it was, you know, we need these people, we need to hire them, we'll place them now. And Nick, you were arguing that, <coughs> especially in large-scale landscape restructuring, design and the coalition building has got to be ahead of, of uh, being handed the, the funds to do it. Yeah, mostly because design is slow and, you know, uh, uh, takes a long time to get projects. Well, especially if you're talking about regional projects. But I think there is a little bit of the seat of the pants kind of uh, flying with some of these programs. And I think um, uh, some of the first principles that uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority, for example, was working around was, um, you know, just making sure that the, um, the places they were making were compelling and convincing for people that were about to be forced to relocate as their home got flooded for a new reservoir. And so I think there was an inherent need to use design as persuasion. I'm not sure that fully worked, but they certainly tried. Um, I think the, the, the opposition this time around will be different, and designers have to be attuned to you know, uh, what is the coalition that they are um, designing for. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? So I just want to give a shout out to the um, article that we published earlier this year by Billy Fleming on design in the Green New Teal. Um, <laughs> you know, in which you know, Billy um, argued very eloquently that designers have, for the most part, not stepped up politically, not been part of the, the, the sort of uh, frontline political conversations. And that was true in the New Deal. Um, it, there were a lot of lawyers, a lot of economists. Uh, it's interesting, though, that um, one of the major New Dealers was Harry Hopkins, who was a social worker. So there's a saying in Washington, personnel is policy. So uh, that was a big reason why the New Deal played, you know, why social welfare was such a big part of the New Deal. So I think there is an opportunity uh, if the design professions would embrace the politics of it, and that's not something that we have for the most part embraced as a profession that is centered around private practice. So embracing the politics of it, I remember a chart um, of, that the ASLA put out in 1935, and it has all of the New Deal programs, all of the governmental entities in charge of those programs, and then all the things that fall under it. So it was, I mean, again, it was 1935, so it was after the New Deal, but it was basically saying, here's the work where landscape architects can be involved. Mm -hmm. So that, again, is kind of reacting to mm -hmm. something that's already been put in place and what 
what your presentation was arguing, one, getting political in terms of actually getting in elected positions of power, but political in that we should also be designing what those programs are and redesigning what the, how the government organizations might be structured, mm -hmm. uh, like the Army Corps of Engineers, for example. I mean, just restructuring actual um, organizations. Is that how I understand it? What, in terms of political, can be... Yes, I, I do think that there's a potential for that, although it really will involve a, a lot of changes in the profession. I mean, we'd have to worship different gods. I mean, because for the most part, we worship, we worship people who create beautiful things. I mean, if you look at most of the people who give lectures at schools, they're people who run leading private practices. Uh, and, and, but we don't have a lot of people who, are, who occupy high positions. Uh, and it's not encouraged in our profession. You know, in San Francisco, there are a few architects who work for the city, and they're, they're never the ones who show up, you know, lecturing around town. Um, and and that's and that seems that does seem um, a strong potential. Um, so I. Any ideas what they might look, look like from a pedagogical or education point of view? Because our professions are, I mean, they're degree oh. granting, and in terms of design, um, accredited degree granting, and you know. You, test, you know how to design a parking lot, but not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it also, I mean, there's so much design that went into a lot of these New Deal facilities that, you know, even the living New Deal doesn't know who these designers are. There was, mm -hmm. you know, some guy in charge of a CCC brigade that, like, had hired a really good stonemason, and they, they built some really cool stone walls, and they really kind of uh, made a, a, a moment in the landscape that now we inherited. And uh, some projects were done with a very different kind of mentality. And so I think um, getting just people from the design professions into this Green New Deal mobilization and into positions where they can make those decisions on the fly, I think will be super important. And it does mean that we can't have students now aspiring to go to the same you know, four firms upon graduation. It means they have to be ready to embrace the public sector as a career, and that's a very different kind of um, future. And you know, this conference is part of that. I got an um, email the other day from someone who works at a house committee, just asking about ideas, and I assumed that every single speaker at this conference got it, because there was no particular reason why I would. So that just, I'm not sure, Billy and Daniel and Kate, what you may have done to, you know, see these things, but I think that that, that kind of, of conversation, I mean, those kinds of pathways feel really important at this moment. So that uh, maybe, you know, when, when the next president convenes that group of a few people to talk about the next Civilian Conservation Corps, you know, there's an, actually a landscape architect in the mix in the White House that day. <laughs> Perfect segue. Um, so a lot of what we've been talking about and what was a hallmark of the, Green, of the New Deal was the dramatic increase in the power and, and role and involvement of the federal government, right? So that this is a moment when, when I think about in, in planning where, uh, um, where I teach, where there really was this possibility for better and for worse in certain ways of, of national planning so that there really was this increased federal involvement. Um, and for the Green New Deal, a lot of this is predicated on that as well, but if, um, if the, uh, the next election doesn't 
go the way that would support the Green New Deal, um, you know, what are the possibilities to um, think about state and local efforts? And what, what can we learn from earlier, um, from history as well, where states and cities and uh, individual uh, farmers and, and farm organizations, et cetera, uh, can continue to push this forward um, even if we don't succeed in achieving the vision at this moment. You know, uh, what, are, what are the non-national uh, level things that can still be done to contribute to this? Because we've seen that in the past. And what, how can we find some encouragement in that and some lessons for what to do? I find the first part of your question very hard. <laughs> that the, the contingency that you've just outlined. That's I think it's relevant, though, either way, though. This isn't just going to be a federal story. Um, it's, uh, we see even now that individual states um, are innovating, individual industries, too, imposing their own regulations, right, when the federal government is abdicating, abdicating um, that responsibility and opportunity. Uh, so how can we think about, I think one of the risks of, of the Green New Deal is that it's this all or nothing, big, top-down supporting. Um, but, and of course, it's being supported from the bottom up, and we can leverage that and think about how uh, individual places can lead to uh, at different levels. I don't think it all has to be national, although the, of course that would be helpful. Well, there's an example that um, uh, I, my, my colleagues on the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems uh, have been doing in Europe. Uh, and the story there is that the, the common agricultural policy is a scourge on the life of sustainable agriculture. Um, it's, it sort of looks like the farm bill uh, in, in the United States, and it's not good. Um, so what the, the, the policy process there was to take three years to bring different partners uh, to the table uh, to, to get people who don't normally talk to each other, like you know, farmers and farm workers, for example, um, and environmental advocates and anti-hunger advocates, and to, to forge a coalition uh, that then developed the policy together uh, that looks like uh, uh, you know, a sort of Green New Deal and agriculture policy. But it took a while, precisely because the speed of trust is not necessarily the, the, the speed of getting things done by February, as the Green New Deal perhaps might, might wish us to. And that speed of trust... It, you know, three years later, there was a policy launched, and you may say, well, that's, you know, what, what, what good is that? Uh, well, the, the advantage was that because it was a process that involved a range of movements and organizations, uh, they took this, this document forward and these ideas forward, and with the, the sort of luck of uh, the European Union presidency moving in, into different hands, uh, now there's a, a, a mechanism, and some of the, the folk who, who crafted this policy are actually now in the European Union, trying to change the common agri agricultural policy in ways that look like they're going to be successful. Uh, but that's a three-year process that certainly we're starting in, in the United States now. Uh, but it, 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 it has to involve the state and it has to involve sorry, the federal level and it has to involve state level because so much food and planning policy for, for, around agriculture happens at state level, not at federal level. Uh, and state agricultural commissioners are really important uh, in, in, in this story. So I do think that there's a, th there are ways in which you can run several tracks simultaneously so that when the next farm bill comes up in 2023, uh, there will be a Green New Deal-inspired replacement for it, uh, as, there, as there must be. And I think you know, it, it's okay for uh, these federal and state processes to, to, to run messily in tandem as, uh, you know, as the movement grows and develops. As much as I agree with you, it's hard to... The, the first part of the question, I think it has to be, because it's not just 2020, then it's like 2022, 2024. 
um, mm -hmm. and we know the Senate makeup and filibuster in our Supreme Court. I mean, the, the, some of the New Deal programs, originally they were challenged by the Supreme Court and, and mm -hmm. shut down mm -hmm. because they were considered unconstitutional, too far-reaching. And um, given our Supreme Court makeup for the next 30 or 40 years, it's hard to imagine that's not going to be the case. So it would seem to me so much of the groundswell has been coming from everyone, not federal. And so it would seem to me that, that that's what has to put the pressure on and that's what is going to do it, even more so. Sorry to bring it back to the CCC, but I think um, there's some the Civilian Conservation Corps, although now there's also a California Conservation Corps, okay. which has kept doing the same thing with, okay. you know, um, maybe a wider workforce. Um, but uh, one, the CCC really was scaling up efforts that New York and Pennsylvania were already engaged in, right? And so there were, you know, the, the laboratories of democracy. I think the same thing we're seeing now with um, states passing their individual, you know, Green New Deal mandates. Maybe it's name only, maybe it's not, but certainly there's room to have rapid state-level support for certain things. And secondly, cities as agents of um, uh, kind of uh, doing this work, but they, but they do need the federal money, right? So I think there's going to have to be this layered thing. The, the other thing with the CCC is that in some ways the reason why um, we have so many projects to point to, the reason why it's considered one of the most um, successful and popular of FDR's New Deal initiatives is because the way it was rolled out was very smart. Um, FDR uh, targeted places with CCC investment where he was politically weak and he used that as a way to garner support and to get rural communities that might not you know, uh, immediately support him to actually see immediate benefits and then kind of was rewarded with this massive um, re-election. Um, and so I think there, there, there can be a way, uh, you know, if it doesn't get stopped at the Supreme Court for the kind of initial um, uh, deployment of some of these programs to start to generate their own politics. Well, if I could play devil's advocate, yes. we could take some inspiration from Puerto Rico where they made their governor resign. That's an idea. <laughs> right, so it, can't, it cannot happen without continuing disruptive action, which I think we'll hear more later at the end of the day in terms of the importance of union organizing on the one hand. and. Mm -hmm. striking and disruptive action at the other because nothing is more effective than hitting capital where it hurts. So, And, and that, you know, the federal role is important. I mean, money, <laughs> the, the provision of dollars is what makes ideas turn into action a lot of times in terms of um, it's critical, right? And, and, if, uh, and so we do have to continue to think about how, uh, how to mobilize at that level, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a, um, a story, I don't know if it's apocryphal, where somebody was talking to Franklin Roosevelt about and asking for something that wanted to happen, and Roosevelt says, I would like to make this happen, now make me do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> means <He's>, mobilize. <laughs> yeah, he was, yeah, he, he was told, he, he, he didn't have this, he, he, wanted he agreed to with the people that he, he needed to do this, but mm -hmm. he couldn't do it without people's knocking down doors and banging down doors and making it. Exactly. Yeah. I think Daniel wants us to stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's have a huge round of applause for our fantastic panel.